Nehemiah chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, it'd be great if you could turn to Nehemiah 4. Um, we're actually were due to go to Nehemiah 3, but we'll be doing Nehemiah 3 next Sunday. All right? And it doesn't matter if it's slightly out of order. Chronologically, it still works fine. Uh, but we'll be looking at chapter 4 today, and Sam will be doing chapter 3 with us uh, next Sunday. And uh, Julian's going to just read out 1 to 6, verses 1 to 6 of Nehemiah chapter 4. Okay, so thanks, Julian. Uh, I'll put it up on the screen as well in case you don't have your Bibles. Whoa, there it is there. Uh, Nehemiah 4, 1 through to 6. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Excellent. Thank you. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much for what you were doing amongst this particular people. And we know, Lord, that what you are doing amongst them is for our instruction today. And so, Lord, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would please continue to speak to us. Amen. Lord, speak to us, yeah, deep into our hearts. We want to arise and build. We want to see Jerusalem, as it were. We want to see the city of God built and so that it is filled with your splendor and your glory. Lord, we want to see your glory come in our lives as well. We want to see your kingdom come in power. And so we pray, come and grip us uh, with it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, before I get into the story, actually, I wanted to just share something that happened to me many, many years ago when I was a young teenager, which is almost beyond my ability to remember back uh, when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And uh, I was living in a little town on the very edge of town in this country. And uh, what that meant was that uh, we spent a lot of our time as, as youngsters jumping over the back fence and disappearing into the farmlands nearby. It's what, we, what you did. And, uh, and there's one particular episode that comes to my mind. And uh, it was a friend of mine and I, and we were jumped over the back fence. Uh, we had eaten our main meal, and the uh, sun had gone down. It was dark, those kind of dark evenings. And we just disappeared off into the fields to explore. And uh, I remember very clearly, as we were going along these fields and paddocks, there was one particular field we needed to get through to get to the other side, a particular track we wanted to follow. The trouble was, was that in that field was, about, was a herd of steers. And if you know what a steer is, it's, not, it's a male cow. No, it's not a male cow. Cow's female anyway. So it's a bull that's been fixed. So uh, that's what a steer is. 
And uh, there was a herd of them, about 30 or 40 of them, sitting in this field. And they were taking no notice of us at all. They were just you know, boringly chomping grass and casually looking up at us but going back to eating again. But we needed to get across. So I remember very clearly we began to walk towards this herd, got into the paddock. And I remember distinctly when we got into their field, it was like a a certain hostility began to climb. You kind of just sense hostility about the place. They, they'd stopped eating and they were staring at us at that point. And, uh, and we imagined that as we walked towards them, they would just scatter like you would expect. They'd fear, you know, part company and go. Well, this particular herd didn't part company at all. And they just stood there staring at us. And, and you could, and maybe I was imagining it, but I could sense a certain threat. And... Uh, my friend, who was a bit of a farmhand, he kind of prided himself on growing up on a farm, he, he went up to the first steer that was um, much closer to us than all the others. He goes up to the steer and he, and he punches it on the nose, <laughs> which you shouldn't do, right? That's cruelty <laughs> to animals. Just wanted to get that out there. And with the expectation that it would take off and they'd all fly away, they'd all just disappear. Well, this steer didn't budge, just stared back at us, stared back at us. <laughs> and then the whole herd began to move towards us, <laughs> just began to move. And I still remember turning around and just running like this, in the dark, running into tree trunks and streams and whatever, just to get out of there. And behind us was the thumping sound of this herd galloping after us. The point is this, the reason why I kind of share this story is that until we got into that paddock, until we started walking forward, everything was fine. But as we began to advance into their territory, there was a very clear reaction, all right? By just moving forward, we were stirring up a bit of hostility. And in a funny kind of way, that's what's going on here in Nehemiah chapter 4. So, so just to recap the story, in case you've kind of lost the story thread, just to recap, chapter 1 of Nehemiah is about, you know, when Nehemiah's back in Persia, and he's there in cupbearer to the king, and, and relatives of his have come back from Israel, and Jerusalem was obviously in Israel and, and torn down and, and, and crumpled, and they were trying to rebuild the walls or rebuild Jerusalem. And, uh, but he heard they hadn't gotten very far, and, and so chapter 1 is about Nehemiah. It really breaks his heart that Jerusalem is still destroyed, and he cries out to God. Chapter 2 is about how he then he himself returns to Jerusalem. Uh, takes that epic journey, 800 Ks or whatever it was back then, all the way back to Jerusalem, and how he gathers the people of God around, and he basically he says to them, come on, let's rebuild the walls, let's rebuild this place. And then chapter 3 is how the people respond, and how they all pitch in and they start to build. It's a great chapter, and, and Sam will unpack that for us uh, next time. The point is, by the end of chapter 3, they're beginning to make some headway, all right? The people are working hard, the walls are beginning to go up, and God's purposes are beginning to move forward. Trouble is, it's like stepping into a paddock full of steers, all right? Because even as the walls are going up and the people are moving forward, there's a reaction, and so chapter 4, as we've seen, opens up with when Sambabalit heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. In other words, as the people of God are moving forward in God's purposes, something hostile is stirred. Sambalit, this guy, comes onto the scene. 
Now, if you don't know who he is, he's mentioned once before in chapter 2, but here he's now angry and incensed. And, uh, and if you think, well, who is this guy? Well, just to say the name, Sanballat, should give you a heads up because the name Sanballat means secret enemy, right? Secret enemy, which is a weird thing to call your child, all right, if you think about it. Someone must have called him Sanballat. I call you secret enemy. Secret enemy Hanari. It just doesn't, it doesn't work, does it? And, of course, it's not helped by the fact that he's a horror knight. Horror knight. Sounds like he's from the dark side, all right? He's a horror knight. And, of course, being a horror knight means this, in case you didn't know. He's from one of the people groups who occupied the promised land before the Israelites ever came there. So he's one of the original enemies. So here's Sam Ballot. He's a local power in the land. He's, he's against the people of God. He's against the purposes of God and the, and the promises of God. And when the people of God aren't doing anything, he's quiet. We don't hear anything of him. But as soon as the people begin to build, as soon as they begin moving forward, suddenly he reacts. <laughs> and the thing is, in the Bible, whenever the people of God make any kind of advance or breakthrough, you'll see that same thing happening again and again. There's always a reaction against it, isn't there? There's always, always an enemy that responds. And throughout the scriptures, you'll see this again and again, even in the New Testament too. I love reading the book of Acts. You know, the Holy Spirit comes upon the early church and they begin to break out in the miraculous and the paralyzed man is healed at the gate. And, but the reaction is Peter and John are hauled before the Sanhedrin and threatened. And this happens again and again. In fact, in chapter 6 of Acts, we're introduced to a guy called Stephen. You probably know the story. And Stephen, we're told, is a man who's full of the Spirit and full of the grace of God. And then in verse 8 of chapter 6, it says this, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. In other words, the kingdom of God is advancing through this guy. But then the very next sentence begins, Opposition arose, however opposition arises. In other words, groups begin to argue with them and then they falsely accuse him and then they have him brought before the Sanhedrin and eventually he's killed. All right, it's that phrase, opposition arose, however. Folks, we need to understand and appreciate that whenever we are seeking to move forward in God, look, whether it's trying to build something like a, a wall or, or whether it's trying to break through in signs and wonders in the miraculous, or, or whether it's sharing your faith with your loved ones, you know, your parents or your teenage kids, or sharing your faith with your colleagues at work, or whether it's simply deepening your prayer life or just seeking to be a more godly person. Listen, whether it's stepping out in the gifts of the Spirit or simply, simply, it's simply obeying a call that God gives you to do something, whatever it is, Biblically, opposition will arise. It's pretty hot in here. You guys all right? You're hot? Can we, can we, oh, Mandy's fine. <laughs> You're trying to keep warm by the heater. Just stay by the heater. Thanks, Marty. It's getting, I'm getting, I'm boiling. Heat will arise. Opposition will arise. 
But it's true. It comes with the territory. Biblically, it's true, isn't it? Uh, the Bible's very clear. There is an, actually, the Bible's very clear. There is an enemy of our souls. Paul says in Ephesians 6, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual enemy. Now, I know that in our predominantly materialistic culture, we find that hard to get sometimes. I mean, because you can't analyze this stuff in a, in a scientifically sometimes, in a, in a lab somewhere. But the mere fact that we can't doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, you can't analyze God in a science lab either, but he's here. All right, And God, through his word, is very clear. You and I, we have an enemy. I mean... Peter is very strong, isn't he? In 1 Peter 5, be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's very strong. And Jesus, very clear, he's regularly casting out demons and being attacked by the devil too, either, either head on or through the words of those around him. And so the Bible's clear there's an enemy at work who will oppose you and he wants to destroy you. And if you were to ask why, why little old me? What's this about? Well, the answer is simple. He opposes you because, as Nehemiah later says in chapter 6, Nehemiah says this. Let's all join in and say this out loud, shall we? We are about a great work. Now, could you say that again, please? We are about a great work. Pretend you're American or something. Can I try it again? We are about a great work. See, you can do it, see? We are about a great work. That's why you say, well, what great work, Pete, are we about? Well, it's this. It's to usher in the kingdom of heaven wherever he has placed you. Whether it's in the supermarket where you shop or the library where you happen to work or the, or the office block where you spend your days or out on the streets or among the people of God as we seek to build a church full of his word and spirit, full of his grace and power, as we seek to see a colony of heaven on earth, the city of God, we are about a great work. And that is why the enemy will oppose you every step you take and every breakthrough you seek to make. And actually, that's why this passage in Nehemiah is really helpful. It's helpful because in, in two ways. Number one, it, it shows us a common way the enemy will attack us. And number two, we see how Nehemiah overcomes the enemy and pushes through. All right, so just looking at how Sanballat attacks, all right, opposes Nehemiah. We've read the passage, but I'll put it up again. Nehemiah, uh, this, is, uh, this is Sanballat again. He ridiculed the Jews. Actually, when Julian came up, he read it so well. Sam Ballot, you make a great Sam Ballot, Julian. You kind of sound like an East sort of London boot boy. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? That's, that's how you sounded, wasn't it? What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? That's his attack. That's not a physical attack, is it? But it is powerful, and Nehemiah hears what's being said about him. Obviously, he comes back to Nehemiah. 
It's a very powerful attack. And actually, it's one of the prime ways the enemy opposes us. And I guess you'd call it uh, an attack of scorn, of despising. It's, it's that kind of attack. It's that, it's that sense of, what are you trying to do? You're pathetic. You'll fail. That's what that attack is. You're weak. You're no good. And what makes this kind of attack so powerful is that it's often mingled with a little bit of truth, isn't it? Because the reality is, at this point, the Jews weren't particularly strong compared to what they once were as the people of God. And the stones they're working with are cracked and burnt and broken, actually. And the wall isn't very high. So there's a, there's a little element of truth. And that's why it's a quite a powerful attack, because it gets under your skin. So let me ask you, has anyone ever felt that before? Anyone here been on the receiving end of this kind of put-down, this kind of scorn? Just to say, I have often. Not necessarily from people, but from the enemy. Often. In fact, pretty much throughout my history as a believer, I've had attacks like that. That's the bottom line. Right from my earliest days, when I first got saved and turned up at church, as I've told many of you before, you know, I was the guy who couldn't speak. I couldn't say a word physically. I couldn't get the words out. I just stuttered one word after the other. I blocked and blocked and blocked. And so for me to even go to church was a big deal. So I'd be the quiet guy who would go and I'd put some chairs out. I'd kind of help pack down. I'd quietly go home again. And all the time that I was on the way to church, this guy would be on my shoulder. Sam Ballot would be on my shoulder saying, you're rubbish. No one wants to talk to you. You'll make them feel stupid. You'll make, you'll make, you'll make yourself feel stupid. You'll make them feel awkward. <laughs> and I had this every Sunday. That's what Sam Ballot does. It kind of gets under... Because the truth was I couldn't speak. And then, through a series of bizarre but miraculous events, I found myself pastoring a church. I mean, how do you get into a job like that when you struggle to speak? How, really? And so as a young pastor, there I was every Sunday having to preach, which meant that every Saturday night, Sam Ballot would be on my shoulder saying, you're rubbish, you're rubbish. You won't even make it through the sermon. You'll embarrass the folks. They won't want to come. Every Saturday night, I had this. It was just, and it nearly crushed me. And uh, in fact, I was telling some friends a few weeks ago, I can't remember when, about the time and about that period when I, for some reason, I don't know how I got into these troublous spots, but I found myself having to speak to two churches on one evening, all together on, a, on an evening for a two-hour teaching session on the incommunicable attributes of God. <laughs> and they were incommunicable because I couldn't communicate them. So 20, 25 minutes in, I'm struggling in front of this, these, these congregations. I am un, I'm going, I'm going uh, 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 veins sticking out, sweat pouring down. The congregation's going, <laughs> doing their best to egg me along. And I still remember very clearly to this day, about 20 minutes in, I had Sam Ballot on my shoulder saying, Pete, close your Bible, pick up your notes, put them in your Bible, and walk down that aisle out into the dark and never come back. The temptation to do that, you'll never know. The temptation to do that was so strong. I could have done that, and I nearly did. Uh, I was standing there. Amazingly, I got through that terrible, terrible night. I won't go into any more detail, but I got through. 
But then I found that that was just the start. And in fact, every new venture in God I've ever taken, you know, the first time I prophesied, I mean, come on, the first time we prophesy, you know what it's like. Sam Bellett's on your shoulder saying, it's rubbish, it's you, it's not God. <laughs> if you get up there and share that, you know what's going to happen. The elders will have to intervene <laughs> and say, that's a false prophet. Come on, you know. That's what he does. That's what Sam Ballett does. Every new venture. When we planted our first church, Julie and I, I could tell you stories. When we planted this church, I could tell you stories. Even as we started in our lounge, families were arriving. Every night, Sam Ballett, you'll fail. Nothing will happen. No one will join you. That's what Sam Ballett does. Even around this church, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of the ministries that we've launched. I mean, Wahini to Tatoa. Wonderful to hear stories last week and testimonies. But ask Claire Todd, was it smooth sailing all the way on the building? No, it wasn't. <laughs> so even a few weeks before Wahini Torch, I remember you said to me, not many have signed up. And you can imagine Sam Bella and no one's going to. And of course they did. And it was a glorious time. But that's what the enemy does. Or you think about hots going out on the street. You're crazy. Nobody wants to be prayed with out on the streets. I reckon the team that goes out probably hears that thing every time. It's what happens. Even as a whole church, you know, we've received such prophecies from God. You know, multicultural church, apostolic resource base impacting the nation. But even as you say that, you can hear a whisper saying, but you're pathetic, you're small. <laughs> it's right there. It's what he does. It comes with the territory. Why? Because we are about a great work. That's why. God's kingdom is on the move through us. And there are people to be set free. There's a city out there to be reached by a church with the walls up. That's the point. The church is being restored again to the degree that we are reaching the city around us. So that is what is happening. We are about a great work. So we can't take a step back. And, you know, sometimes in my idle moments when I'm on my own, I think, what if I had, all those years ago, what if I had closed my Bible and walked out never to be seen again? What if I had given in to Sam Ballot that night? And the answer is, I don't know where I'd be today if I had gone down that track. But I suspect I wouldn't have seen this church planted or others, or other things happen. I suspect I wouldn't have been as fruitful, I guess, as I feel I have been at times. Nehemiah doesn't back down. He overcomes. And we need to as well. And more and more as the days ahead, just want to give you a heads up, more and more in the days ahead. The question, of course, is, is how? How does he overcome? How do we overcome? Well, it's, it's clear as you read on. Chapter 4, Verse 4, <laughs> I love what happened straight after the scorn, straight after this attack, attack, the very next words, Nehemiah says, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. He doesn't even talk to Sam Bell. He's not interested in talking to him. Immediately he turns to God. And I just love this. See, Nehemiah, we already know, is a, a man of profound prayer, you know, <laughs> When the enemy attacks, the first thing he does, he, he turns to God. You see, for Nehemiah, prayer isn't just an add-on or something we do after we've tried everything else. No, for Nehemiah, prayer is life. 
why it's the channel for God's grace to flow. It's like standing under a trapdoor of grace, and as you pray, the trapdoor opens and grace falls. That's what prayer is. That's what prayer is. And Nehemiah knows it. And another thing about this, this prayer, it reveals how Nehemiah knows who he's turning to. It's our God. He knows God. I want to ask you, how well do you know your God? Your God who loves you, who's closer to you than your very breath. As Manny was singing out that beautiful song, I'm a daughter. Yeah, you're king. I'm a daughter. Amazing contrast. You are mighty, yet you're my dad. How precious is that? She knows her God. Nehemiah knows his God. How well do you know him? I was just thinking the other day as a grandfather, I know what it is to be called upon from my grandkids. A few weeks ago, uh, our granddaughter, uh, barely a couple of years old, can barely speak, and I'm watching her across the lounge, and she's in amongst these toys. I'm just watching her, and at one point she strings two words together. She can barely do that. She just says, help, Papa. Man, she doesn't need to ask me twice. I'm down on the floor with her. I'm just delighted to be asked. How much more does our Father love to hear us cry to him for help? Look, prayer is a precious, beautiful gift. You want to overcome? Then look again at your prayer life. Let me just say you will never overcome beyond your prayer life because you will need the grace of God to overcome every step of the way. But God has given us this beautiful gift. Amen? Second thing I note from this passage is in verse 6, there, there, there comes a point after all that's gone on when Nehemiah simply says this. He says, so we, uh, we rebuilt the wall. <laughs> I just love these throats. We rebuilt it. In other words, there must have come a moment when he decided, look, Whatever the enemy is saying, all right, whatever scorn is coming my way, whatever the ins and outs and the doubts, we're going to push through. I'm going to trust God. We're going to believe him. We're going to settle it in our hearts. There comes a moment when we have to settle some things in our hearts. We are going to obey him. It's just come to me. I remember <laughs> that night when I'm in front of those two churches, and I'm bumbling through that two-hour agony that I put them through as well as myself. And I got to the end of that evening, and I remember sitting down, and Julie was there, we were going out at the time, we weren't married, and I remember sitting down exhausted, absolutely not wanting to talk to anybody, I just sat down, and I said to her, I will never do this again, ever. And she says she didn't say it, but I know she did. She turned to me and said, don't be stupid. You are called to this. You are called to this. We must settle it in our hearts. We are called to this. It really doesn't matter about anything else. We are called to this. I'm going to trust you, whatever the uncertainty, whatever the doubts. I just feel that among us this morning, look, I know there are at least some here, and you sense God is stirring you to something a task, a discipline, a calling, and you know God is speaking to you, but you haven't settled it yet. I believe God is saying, settle it. Settle it. Believe me. Believe me. 
believe me. God is calling us as a church to mobilize in ways that will surprise us. We need to settle it when we hear the call to settle it. By your grace, Lord, we are going to do this, whatever the doubts, whatever the uncertainty, and that is a person who overcomes. And so the wall is rebuilt, and by the end of chapter 8, all the people gather, and there's a mighty celebration before God of incredible joy. (laughs) It's a revival, some commentators say, in the hearts of the people. It is a precious, precious moment. Why? Because they overcame. Folks, not only are we to receive promises from God, we are to walk in them and fulfill them. That is why you got them in the first place. And we are about a great work. Amen.